Hey guys, Dr. Z, welcome to the Z Dog MD Show. Today I have a returning guest. He was in the neighborhood. I thought we would talk about important stuff. This is Dr. Patrick Ha. He's a UCSF professor. And uh, what, 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 what are you again? I'm the chief of head and neck surgical oncology. I, you see, he told me like five times and I'm like, I'm gonna flub that because I'll say head and neck chief of oncological surgical. It is complicated. Everything's complicated these days, man. Sure is. How, how's life been for you? Welcome back, by the way, to yeah, the show. Yeah, of course, no, good to see you again. The reason I love having you on is that you know more about head and neck cancer prevention, treatment, and just oncology in general than most people I have ever met. And we happen to go back a long ways. So the other couple shows we've done, um, really really got people woken up to this idea of HPV as a cause of head and neck cancer, a preventable cause. So you can actually vaccinate yeah, against crazy, it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And what do you think's been going on recently with, because of pandemic vaccination rates, do you think this is gonna impact head and neck cancer coming down the line? It's hard to say. I mean, I think that the uptake of HPV vaccine in particular is still, it's pretty flat. Um, but hasn't it, changed much. It hasn't changed too much as far as I can tell. Um, but I think that actually they just gave an indication now for head and neck cancer as one of the things that, that actually can be prevented as a result of it. Oh, really? Like an FDA indication? That's right. Ah. Yeah. So, so that was kind of big news to us. I and mean, we, we were sort of telling people this, but it's nice that it's official. Um, I don't know if that's enough to move the needle that people are suddenly stimulated to go vaccinate. Um, but at least it sort of validates it as a, as a potential curative uh, vaccine. Yeah. And, for, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, HPV can be the cause of multiple head and neck cancers. And so the vaccination for HPV that's typically given to boys and girls, you know, somewhere around 11 years old and, and before they're exposed naturally to HPV can potentially prevent these head and neck yeah. cancers. And yeah. you're seeing an increase in incidence in HPV related yeah, cancer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So for, for at least in the US, you know, the, the incidence of smoking and things like that are, are is generally going down. Mm. Um, so a lot of our other subsites like in the mouth or the voice box, those sorts of things, um, the, the number of patients coming in each year is going down, which is great. Um, but the one subsite that is rising um, is the oropharynx, so the tonsil or base of tongue, and that's solely due to HPV. Ah. So we're hopeful that you know in another 10, 20 years, if people are vaccinating even a little bit, it'll start to bend that curve back down and you know we can help sort of not eradicate it, but at least get it back down to kind of acceptable levels. So what happened to Eddie Van Halen? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah. So I, uh, truthfully, I haven't read that much about it, but I yeah. have seen some quotes and I know that he uh, you know, had oral cancer. So this is in the tongue, not HPV related. Ah. Uh, so in the tongue, it's mostly, uh, most of the times due to smoking and drinking. Those mm. two in combination are, are particularly bad for this. Um, so I know that I just read quotes that he blamed this metal pick that he would that he would hold in his mouth, and you know, and people have done things like thought it was due to dental fillings and things like that. So you know, there's there's all kinds of theories, um, and they are sort of interesting in that it usually does happen on the side of the tongue. Mm. Um, so there is maybe something to this, you know, like friction, or you know, the cells have to turn over more often. Ah. So maybe they're you know have a higher chance of something going wrong and then turning into a cancer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's causative. Right. Right. So just because it happens there, it doesn't mean that it was because of the friction versus, um, you know, other things like smoking or alcohol. So Eddie, you know, I went back and watched a bunch of his videos after he passed because he, you know, he's one of our, as a guitarist, a hero. I yeah, mean, he's, he's a god. And um, watching him back in the 90s and 80s, even with Sammy Hagar, where he does this prolonged uh, eruption solo, it, you can see this on YouTube. It's really amazing. So he's got a cigarette in his mouth. He's got the pick in his mouth. He's got a, thing of beer, he's doing all these things while blazing the solo. And this is year after year after show after show after show. So like you said, correlation versus causation, like how much of it is the pick? How much of it is the amazing exposure to alcohol and tobacco? Yeah, and I think that it's not so much, you know, like a judgment on his character or right. anything like that. It's more so just, you know, um, it's really just to highlight that, look, if smoking does cause cancer, it will cause cancer in the mouth, it'll cause cancer elsewhere. Um, so I think it's important just to not try to hide that. Um, but it, it detracts from nothing of who he is and you know, like how amazing of a guitarist he was. Um, but for some reason that gets, it, you know, it gets sort of caught up in the media or something. Like it, yeah. I've seen the quotes, you know, many times and I think, oh, that's not, you know, it's probably not exactly the whole story. Yeah, there's probably, and there may be a little bit of denial too, you know, on the yeah. part, yeah. Now, what you said is important because I think like, especially dealing with cancer, people's first question, you know, when I had Marty McCary on the show, who's a pancreatic surgeon and, and deals with a lot of pancreatic cancer, the first question patients ask is, why did I get this, Yeah, right? No, it's a common question. And yeah. I think, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, my, my approach to that when I talk to patients is more so that, 
Um, if there are things that you're doing that might trigger it or make it worse or somehow make the recovery or the treatment more difficult, then we need to address those things. Right. Um, but in many cases, we don't know why. Mm. So there are there is a group of patients who never smoke, never drink, are going to get cancer of some kind. Uh, we see it in the tongue as well. Ah. Um, and in particular, it tends to be young women. Ah. Um, there's a group of these patients who are like in their 30s or even 20s um, who develop tongue cancer. They never smoked, never drank. They're kind of young for any exposure history anyway. Huh. It's not HPV related. We don't really understand why, but if you look at the genetics of it, meaning the, the DNA and kind of what's going on in these cells, it's kind of the same as, as, as a cancer that erupted in someone who had been smoking all their lives. So it's the same kind of DNA mutations and things. Huh. Um, Are they the children of smokers? No. No. Yeah, so there's, there's, you know, again, so people yeah. tend to think, oh, but I, you know, my dad smoked or I worked in this company and, you know, when we right. breaks, there was someone next to me who was smoking. Um, but you really can't pinpoint anything. And so huh. there are times when, you know, like this whole frictional idea that, oh, the cells are just turning over and something bad happens and that gets carried through. And then another bad thing happens and a few more bad things happen and all of a sudden it becomes a cancer. Um, so, you know, you know, again, like it doesn't necessarily change what we do, but it, I think people like to have some sort of meaning behind it, yeah. Um, but that's not always the case. And that that meaning, because you brought this up, actually, the meaning can be conflated with a moral <sighs> finger pointing, which I think is very harmful, right? Yeah I, yeah, I agree. I think that again, we're not trying to judge. You know, the same way that someone is smoking and they don't have cancer, I'll talk to them about smoking cessation and trying to prevent it, uh, things from happening down the road, but. You know, it's not that I'm judging them. It's right. more so that, hey, I just want you to make it aware and there are things we can do. So with cancer, I think this is also where HPV does become a little bit interesting is that, you know, it's a sexually transmitted disease. Some people kind of look at their partners, they think about kind of what they've done and, it, you know, mm. maybe they talk about it, maybe they don't. Mm. Um, but but there is sort of a sort of an underpinning of judgment, um, denial, mm. um, you know, and, and sort of, uh, what's the word? kind of like meaning of why did I get this cancer? Like mm. there must be something deeper behind it as opposed to a random. Yeah, thing. yeah. And, and humans are sort of meaning seeking creatures. They're machines that seek meaning. Well, uh, especially for this, because it's such a life altering event right. and life altering diagnosis. Right. Um, so I think it's normal. I think it's natural for people to think that. Right. Um, but you don't want to get in the way of treatment. Right, and speaking of which, so what if someone decides they're gonna continue to smoke? They have a smoking-related head and neck cancer and they continue to smoke during treatment. How do you sort of talk about that with your patients? Think about that. Well, you know, again, so approach them in a non-judgmental way and just indicate that, look, a lot of these cancers are due to smoking, you know, and we know that's addictive. Um, so we do have programs in place where we actually have um, sort of like professional uh, full-time smoking cessation counselors and specialists, mm -hmm. um, so we can refer them to them. Um, but that you know that implies that they have some will to to quit and right. some desire. I will say that with a cancer diagnosis, it's a pretty strong you know <laughs> kick in the pants to go, hey, you know something something's going on here and it's not good. Yeah. Um, and then I will say that for head and neck cancers, usually the treatment is is somewhat rigorous. So at some point they stop smoking because it's just it's uncomfortable Too or it much. hurts or you know. Yeah. Then the question is, are they going to start again? So that's where we have an opportunity as well to try to get them on medications, counseling, so that like, look, you did it. Cancer's gone. You stop smoking for this, you know, few month period. Why don't we keep it going? Ah, you know, and so that's kind of a little golden window there. And this again, we've spoken about this before, but this idea of the interdisciplinary team that you have, right? You're you're, you're not, you know, you're not the the boss of everybody. This is a, a organism that you've created. That, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we integrated them quite a while ago, actually, and we have some grants sort of centered on, you know, how can we implement this and, and track it better. Um, but you know, I think that it, it starts with everyone on the same page. Mm -hmm. So they know that this is what happened. We just say it in a matter of fact way that this is one of the reasons for it, um, that we can help you with it. Um, and that I tell them, I realize you're not interested now or whatever the, the thing may be, um, but then I'm gonna keep bugging them every visit. Mm. And so I said that I say that from the beginning so that they know that I'm not you know, judging them. It's just part of the thing. You know, right. hey, it's like taking a vital sign. Like, hey, you still smoking, how much? And you know, and you right. sort of approach it in a way that doesn't make them feel threatened. Um, but you sort of have to partner with them and say, look, let's try to do this together. Do you think during the pandemic, um, people have been not coming in? What have you seen in your program? Yeah, that's a good question. So, yeah. um, you know, we, we we deal with a very highly specialized group of patients, right? So um, if, if you have a tongue cancer, something growing out of your throat, big neck mass, generally speaking, most people are, are gonna come in for that. Um, so during the pandemic, you know, we, we probably were about 80% of our typical, you know, practice basically. Um, and then it's, it's definitely increased, you know, since things have been, you know, testing and, you know, people are more comfortable getting out there. Mm. Um, 
And what we looked in our data, it actually showed that the patients with more advanced disease were coming in. Uh, they were coming in. Yes. Yeah, so they weren't holding off. No, although right. it's funny, we, we ran one statistic to look at how far away do they travel from. So, yeah, you yeah. know, at UCSF, it's a pretty wide area of it's patients. It's a magnet hospital, yeah. tertiary referral. Yeah. Um, and so if we look at the month prior or the year prior, month to month, um, the average distance was like about 120 miles. Mm. And then since the pandemic during that time, and, you know, during March and April when things were particularly bad and shut down, um, that average distance was about 50 miles. Oh, so it dropped, so the catchment area dropped, yeah. yeah. And I think probably what happened was is that if people are in an underserved area or a place where healthcare is just de facto kind of hard to get to, they don't have access. If a few practitioners say, look, we got to shut down, it's too dangerous, then they're not able to get seen to get that referral. Mm. And they don't necessarily know where to go, they don't know what to do. So the feeder docks were shut down. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And that, that raises the question of, have you seen big ethnic and socioeconomic disparities in head and neck cancer outcomes and treatments and even diagnoses? Yeah, you know, that's a tough question because yeah. um, you know that, that's obviously a bit of a, a catch word. And the, the thing is, is that it's not necessarily that there's much of a biological difference right, mm. between a, a cancer between the different ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. There can be some minor variations, but generally speaking, you know, we, don't, we don't tailor treatment based on ethnic background uh, in order to even think of it that way. But um, I think access to care may be, you know, mm -hmm. an issue. And so it's a bit of a socioeconomic thing. Um, but definitely, you know, here in California, there's there's that the distance factor that if you live within the Bay Area, you tend to have better access to healthcare. There's more doctors and, you know, you have better insurance maybe and that sort of thing. Um, but then you go out about three or four hours, then it starts to become, you know, tougher for people to see a doctor yeah. after even have the wherewithal to know, where do I go for this problem? I'm not sure what to do. Right, right, right. And then the absence of good, primary care as a quarterback, being able to tie it together is yeah. felt quite quite profoundly. So, right, so yeah. actually, um, so we, we did some video visits, you know, during this time and we, we used it almost as a triage, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, we, we do need to examine people. So it's kind of hard for us to maintain a video, you know, relationship with a patient with a potential head and neck cancer. Ah. Uh, but I even had some practitioners where the patients couldn't do Zoom because they don't have a smartphone or they didn't know how, they would go to their office and zoom in with me from oh, the physician's from office. From the physician's yeah, office. Yeah, and I was like, how dedicated are these people? You know, and yeah, they would sit yeah. there with a nurse and kind of help them through it. Yeah. Um, and that, that was really heartwarming to see that. That's great, yeah. Um, but but not everyone has that. Right, right, right. Person, you know. Right, and what you said about needing to examine patients. I mean, I'm still a telehealth skeptic on the level that I think, yes, it's important. I, I think there's a couple problems. One is you need a relationship ideally with the person you're telehealthing with. I think that helps, right? Especially if you're talking primary care, yeah. especially I, I get it. Yeah. But the second thing is touching patients and actually examining them. And you bring that up as a head and neck uh, obstacle, right? Because you need to look in there. Yeah, and I think for what we do, it's even more invasive, right? They're mm. in dark areas. It's not like on the skin where you could try to yeah, show derm. my mole or right, you know, right. what do you think about this? Um, but yeah, so I, I do think that telehealth was important for, um, like I said, triage and screening. And then what it did do, it meant that the in-person visit could be a little more efficient and faster. Oh yeah, because so you're not spending as much time in the room with you, or you know, kind of theoretically with other patients. Mm. Um, but but it also then, I will say that when you meet the patient, you feel like you kind of know them. Oh, so there is that aspect of you know that the video, it's more than a phone call. Yeah. There's a face, you know, you, you kind of start to develop that relationship. Okay, that's interesting because people don't talk about that that much, that you've actually done the groundwork in a way that a phone call wouldn't do. You could do with a phone call, but I think maybe just people's attention aren't as centered. Um, and I will even say this, is that when, when you do a video visit with a patient, you're trying to go through all the data and discuss with them. Um, I don't know there's been any study on this, but they tend to be faster. Interesting, than a phone. Than an in-person. Than an in-person. Because I think what it is, is either that they, you know, because of that interface, it artificially sets They're a barrier. focused. Or that, yeah, I don't know what it is. I, I can't explain it, but I will say that, you know, during the pandemic, we had scheduled, you know, slots for new patients on video. Um, and we might schedule 45 minutes or whatever the number mm. was. But then you'd look at me like, oh, in 25, we're done. Maybe because we're not examining them. Mm. Um, but also that I think we felt like, okay, we're setting up the stage for the, the in-person visit if need be. Um, or we can say, hey, it's com I'm comfortable with you coming in a few months because it doesn't look to be that bad looking Got at the it. data I have. Got it. Um, but it. But it is fairly efficient. Yeah, and you're probably not spending so much time on sort of social pleasantries and stuff. Yeah, so that's yeah. a downside, right? That yeah. you're not, you know, you're not getting to know them as well or maybe right. all their questions aren't, you know, quite answered because they're sitting there in front of you and they're like, oh, I have his time now. Yeah. Um, 
But for better or worse, I thought it, it has a place, you know, and I think it just different specialties, different groups have to figure out how they want to use it. Want to use it. Yeah. So one, one thing, and you know, we talk about screening and access and all that. The thing that drives a lot of people crazy, and we were talking a little bit offline about this, is uh, thyroid stuff. Yeah. Thyroid nodules. I mean, we won't even get into like actual replacement because that's more the endocrinologist, yeah. like, oh, you know, armor thyroid and this and that, and the high, you know, Graves and Hashimoto's. Okay, that's another talk. But this, we're talking about people who discover either by palpating, by ultrasound, incidentally, thyroid nodules, and what do you do about them? And, and so help, help me understand, teach yeah, me sure. about this. So yeah. I mean, it's, it's a broad topic, a lot of different angles, um, but it's really common. So I think there's been a number of studies looking at you know, what percent of people have a thyroid nodule. So I think we should use that word carefully, nodule, not necessarily cancer, you know, so those are, those are different things. Yeah. Um, but the thyroid nodule is common. So, and particularly in women, um, but probably by the age of, you know, 50 to 70, there's probably about half or two thirds of people have some sort of thyroid nodule, if mm. you were to check. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a quite, lot. That's it's a, a lot, yeah, right? Huge so, yeah. so it comes up a lot on, you know, spine MRIs or, you know, they get a CT because they had a car accident and then they go, oh, there's a thyroid nodule, go get mm -hmm. that checked out. So there's some incidental ones. Um, there are times when, you know, now that there's more awareness maybe of, of thyroid, that certain primary care doctors will look and feel and kind of pay more attention, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to the patient coming in saying, what's this big thing here, you know, but they're kind of looking for it. Um, sending more ultrasounds, a lot of in-office ultrasounds at this point. Um, so we're finding them for sure. And, and then what it means is that uh, you'll find more that are cancerous. Right, just by simple numbers, because you're screening right? yeah. ah, or so, something right. else. So, the, so I think the thing is, is that um, what's interesting, interesting uh, quotations about thyroid cancer is that it can be pretty indolent, so pretty slow growing. Um, there have been some autopsy studies saying that there are many people who die with thyroid cancer, you know, uh -huh. that wasn't their cause of death. Also kind of like uh, prostate, like yeah. it's there, right. it doesn't it's just, kill you. It's just hanging out, they never knew, they never right. had that diagnosis tagged to them. Right. Um, and so then the precursor to that is thyroid nodules. And so some percentage of those are going to be, you know, cancerous. Um, so what we're dealing with now is trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, and I think some of it is because of technology. So definitely the fact that, um, that we have ultrasounds, that people are more aware, we are finding them. And so when you look at the history of the cancers, how big are they? They're smaller now mm. than historically. Mm. So, you know, we're seeing them in ultrasounds in the office and in you know, these incidental tests. Um, and so the incidence of thyroid cancer is definitely rising, but the incidence of big thyroid cancers is about the same. Oh. The number of people who pass away from thyroid cancer, at least in the US per year, has been flat for so, decades. So, oh man, there's, okay, there's a lot here. Let, let, let me see if I can unpack some of this and, and process it with you and you can teach me about this. Because what that tells me is potentially we're over screening, not over screening, but in the sense that because we're screening so much, we're finding disease that we never found before, but our actual outcomes aren't changing because the disease that actually matters, we would have found eventually anyways, because it would have presented. Correct. And so that that sort of goes to like screening in general. Exactly. That's the bigger picture. And right. this, is, this is where you get like the COVID deniers come out and they're like, well, if we just didn't test, then there yeah. wouldn't be so many cases, right? right. Um, yeah. But the difference there is that you've got an infectivity issue. So right. you want to actually- you transmit it, right? That's, so that's right. There's a difference. Yeah. You're not going to transmit a thyroid nodule. No. We don't think. No. Yeah. No, no virus. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So yeah, so I, I, it's, what it, what is meant though is that um, there was an interesting shift, at least within the surgical community, where before, if we saw a thyroid cancer diagnosis, it meant, okay, we take out the whole thyroid. Mm. And it was like, that's it. Done. Yeah, done. You're Easy. on replacement don't think about it. for the yeah, rest of your life. Replacement. You know, there's a little risk of the surgery, um, but it's acceptable because they have thyroid cancer. It's cancer. And it was easy to tell patients that because they're like, oh, I have cancer. Do what you got to do. Exactly. Right? You know, that's kind of the, the mindset of most people. Right. Um, it's also a, typically a, a younger, healthier group of people who develop this cancer, probably in their 40s and 50s is not uncommon. Right. Um, so... You know, what happened though is then all these statistics started coming out that, okay, death rate, same, not rate, but even the number of deaths is, is low. So the rate was actually going down uh -huh. because we're diagnosing more that we're, we're finding smaller and smaller cancers. Um, so now we sort of pivoted to being a little bit more conservative about surgery. Um, and a lot of it really depends on the, the pre-test um, diagnostics and workup. Mm. Um, so getting the ultrasounds and not just saying, oh, there's a thyroid nodule. But looking at the ultrasound and gauging, you know, how bad does this thyroid nodule look under ultrasound now that they're so good? Uh -huh. um, you can look at the borders, you can look at calcifications, these little factors that kind of go into even, should I biopsy it? I see. So before, thyroid nodule, biopsy it. Right. 
And then some percentage of those are going to be cancerous. And they're like eight millimeters. And you think, yeah, okay, that means total thyroidectomy. That's what the guidelines say. Oh. So that's where things have changed probably, you know, within the 2000s um, where we've become more conservative. That recently. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so the most recent guidelines are in 2015 um, and uh, radical change. Mm. Yeah. So even like under a centimeter, don't even biopsy it. Even if you think it might be cancerous. Interesting. Which is Just watch. So what would you follow up? Yeah. So the, these are active surveillance, basically. Right, so to right. kind of keep an eye on that. Yearly ultrasound, If it starts months. to grow. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, and then you might biopsy it if it starts to progress. I see. Um, but it's tough. It's tough to tell a patient that. You know, like <laughs> nine millimeters. Uh, I'm, you know, it looks worrisome. We're going to follow it. Could be cancer. The, the, you know, and then the, like, the, and, But see, this is where this will se separate the really good docs from the ones that are knee-jerk, that are, that are actually acting emotionally themselves because I think we get paid to take those things out, right? And we've been conditioned that you do stuff to stop cancer. So the watchful waiting, even though the data that you cite says, not sure we've improved things by taking out your whole thyroid for yeah. an eight millimeter you know, cancer. Right, Yeah. And so, but it's, it's tough because the C word comes up. And oh then, yeah. You know, it seems that you should be doing more than that. Oh yeah. And patients are patients have expectations. Yeah. Right? And and they're appropriate. It's like, oh my God, cancer. Are you kidding me? Now, so th that's why this conversation is important because people don't understand this. That sometimes doing less and watching. So you're not doing nothing. That's a key thing. You're yeah. you're watching carefully. So my mother went through this in her 70s, diagnosed with a incidental nodule. Uh, she had uh, 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 estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, had that treated, no problems there, radiation, lumpectomy. But then I just realized I'm violating my mom's hip of it. I don't think she, <laughs> and she watches the show. She sees watching this right now. I'm gonna get a yelling at, but- You have to sign a waiver. I, I exactly. Somehow I'll blame you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, had a nodule too. And and it was, a, you know, I think just shy of a millimeter, something like that. And, you know, biopsied and benign and watchful waiting, but a lot of stress. Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely is. And so, um, you know, as an active 40 year old, you know, if someone said, hey, there's a nodule we're watching, you know, well, I got to come back every year and yeah. get this biopsy or whatever, yeah. you know, or followed, um, you might say, could you just take it out? Right. I don't, I don't have to deal with it and I don't have to. How, do, know, how do you respond to that? Well, so actually, the guidelines are pretty good about this is okay. that basically they sort of give an out for patient preference. Um. So there's a few different categories. So one is, is, there's the eight millimeter person who, you know, you say, look, we just really shouldn't biopsy it. It's too small. We, we probably aren't gonna recommend doing anything about it, even if we knew. Um, but if they really push you, you say, okay, fine, we'll biopsy it. Mm. Then if it comes back cancer, then you're like, okay, okay. so how far do you want this to go? So, yeah. you know, and you talk about it with them, you talk about the surgical risks and things like that. Um, but, but there is a patient preference, mm. you know, kind of aspect to it. Um, similar to other lumps and bumps, like a lipoma, like a benign fatty tumor that sits under the skin, it's not going to grow. It's not going to shorten their life. But if it bothers someone, then you're like, well, yeah, we can take it out. Sure, you sure, know. So sure. I, I feel like there's a little bit of that as well. That, um, and this is even more serious than a lipoma, right? You, you know. So right. I think there is some judgment and some relationship that has to go into the factor. And do you do a full thyroidectomy for that, or do you no, do partial? We take out partial. Partial. We take thyroid. out like half. Right. And are they typically on replacement hormone after that? Fifty percent of the time. I see. Okay, so there is some, there's a benefit to taking out less than the whole thing. Yes, and yeah. so that, that guidelines also have changed for that. So, uh -huh. you know, for these smaller nodules that seem, you know, independent, no lymph nodes around, um, then we can take out just half comfortably. Um, knowing that we could always go back and take out the other half if we get the pathology and it somehow looks more concerning um, or something should grow there. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into that decision. Mm. Um, but but yeah, it definitely reduces surgical risk um, and it, it makes it easier for the patient. So what are the surgical risks of something like a thyroidectomy? Yeah, so um, the, the biggest one I'd say that affects people is their voice. Ah. Um, so there's a nerve that controls uh, the, the movement of the vocal cords, essentially like a V kind of swiveling back and forth. Is it the recurrent laryngeal? You've got it. Oh man, <laughs> I, got my, I got my medical school training at UCSF, man, and some of it stuck. Um, so yeah, so that, that helps the, the vocal cords move side to side. Um, and so if one of those is weak, then your voice will be hoarse and potentially permanently. So oh. sometimes just operating on the nerve, it goes weak. Um, but then you know it recovers. Uh -huh. So the chance of it being really to the point where it doesn't recover is is less than one percent. So it's it's not high, uh, but obviously it's something that can stay with you for the rest of your life. Mm. Um, there's another nerve that you probably don't remember called the superior laryngeal nerve. No, um, I don't remember. And what that does is actually it's it's kind of near where the thyroid sits as well. Um, but that actually helps tense the vocal cords. Mm. So you couldn't do your music videos if that nerve were cut, but the recurrent was fine. 
I'd so, rather you, be. I'd rather die if yeah, fire so, kills. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, <laughs> so it, it does have a lot to do with like people who are professional voice users, whatever that means, right? If you're a teacher or right. singer or whatever it might be, but um, you know, those are, they're actually two nerves that you have to worry about, not just the movement, but it's the pitch change. You know, being able to tense and loosen the vocal cords. Wow. Um, to have intonation, so you know, those are at risk. And so for some people, you know, again, everyone's an individual. They go, I don't talk much. Just take it out. I don't care. Um, and the risk is low, you know, yeah. but but it's not zero. So, you know, it's something you have to think about. That, see, and again, this is having the conversation with the patient doing what, you know, this, um, what's the term where it's shared decision-making, right? That, yeah. that, I think that's the term. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, when we were running our clinic in Las Vegas, it was a lot of that. It was sitting down with a health coach, a doctor and going, okay, so the specialist said this, now let's figure out what your what are your values? What what do you care about? Yeah, and I think for this it's almost more complicated than if we have someone with a tongue cancer or a tonsil cancer where it's like, okay, we gotta treat it, this is what we gotta do. Because that'll kill you. Right. Yeah. And so the the end result of you do nothing is not good. Quite and here clear. we're almost saying, let's do nothing. Yeah. So it's kind of a reversal of what we kind of normally do. How would you, so would you make a parallel to prostate cancer screening, say, where, you know, you get an elevated PSA because you're testing and then it's like, well, what do we do? Do we do a biopsy if we find, most more people die with prostate cancer than of prostate cancer? Yeah, so actually, if you look at, um, you know, at the NCI, National Cancer Institute, they do publish guidelines for screening and that's where all these PSA, mammography and, you know, various things. Mamma's another one, yeah. Yeah, so they, they review these and look at the data with the panel of experts and then decide, okay, should we offer screening and how should we, or just the high risk, you know, they kind of parse that out. Um, and thyroid, you know, comes up from time to time. They kind of recycle it and look at new data. Um, it's never reached a point of, of screening. Mm. So basically you could, because it'd be pretty non-invasive, just do an ultrasound, ultrasound. you know, and just kind of line people up and here's the yearly ultrasound. But they realize that we're going to catch too many things. Yeah. We're going to have to do things and the cost will be tremendous and people are going to worry about it and we're not going to be saving lives. Right, um, right. So it's kind of... Interesting in that sense. And, and, and let's contrast that to something like the Japanese do using upper endoscopy to screen for gastric cancer. Hmm. So this is an interesting counter example of where something that, we, so what this means is uh, for people who don't understand this idea, um, putting a scope down the throat into the stomach to look for uh, early signs of gastric cancer. Now, gastric cancer in the US is relatively rare. In Japan, yeah. there's a much higher prevalence of it because of maybe diet, genetics, mix of things like that. And they found that it's actually effective to do that screening because they'll save lives at a cost that's manageable. Yeah, so that actually an interesting parallel to that is um, for thyroid actually. Um, so one of the risk factors is radiation exposure. Ah. So if, for example, at Chernobyl or yeah. you know Three Mile Island or someone who's been exposed to radiation or a group of people, they actually do get screened. Makes sense. Yeah, because they're at higher risk for developing thyroid cancer. So <clears throat> that's actually you know a good use of screening. But again, it's not widespread screening. And and this idea of again screening the appropriate po population is important. So if if we're talking about we have li let's make a parallel to COVID, we have limited testing resources for some reason, which we've talked about multiple times on the show. We even had the chief medical officer of Cepheid on here who makes the test. And the idea that, okay, we don't have all this uh, ability to do it, so who are we gonna screen? Well, how about healthcare populations, nursing homes, uh, people that are highest risk? You, you wanna go where the prevalence is high so that there's less likelihood that you're gonna have a false positive right. in, a, in a low prevalence population. You're not wasting money and resources and you're not finding false positives that then you have to follow up and cause harm to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, um, you know, in this scenario there, the screening, it's not screening, but let's say the, the fact that they're in your office for this thyroid nodule has happened. Mm. So it's been identified. Um, so then the question is, then what do you do about it? Mm. Right, and where do you go from there? And that's where, um, you know, I think because of this, it's happening more often, the cytologists, the people who do the needle biopsies, they stick a tiny little needle, numb it up, and just suck out some of the cells out of the nodule. Um, they've gotten really good, mm. you know, at determining what this could be. Um, but there's still sort of this black box of an area where they don't, they can't quite tell. And mm. no more additional needle biopsies are going to be able to determine this because they need to look at the way the cells are arranged, let's say. So they have they, to pull out a chunk. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's just not that feasible in the thyroid. So um, so then they develop another layer of molecular tests. Oh. So where you can look at the proteins and the RNA and the DNA and try to get a score and say, okay, how worried are we about this or how comfortable are we? And it's a probabilistic thing. It's not a black or white answer. Right. Yeah. Although it's pretty good for saying it's not cancer. Okay. So it, you know, the test will say, okay, there's a 98, 99% chance that, you know, that it's not cancer. And that, that is really the most important thing actually. Yeah. 
uh, but it doesn't. The flip side is it doesn't guarantee that you have cancer. So we've done right. many of these where you know they said, look, it's we can't say that it's not, um, mm. but you know, so it puts it about a forty percent chance that it could be cancer. I see. Um, so That's a real gray area. Yeah. So like, we'll go. We'll go after those. Take them out. I see. But we've seen just as many of those turn up negative ultimately. Mm. So. Uh, but it is good. I think that's helpful for trying to determine, okay, we've got this nodule. It doesn't look that bad in ultrasound, but it's kind of big. It's growing a little bit. The needle biopsy was indeterminate. Uh, so then let's get this molecular test. Um, so more and more insurances are now covering that. And, you know, that seems to be a good way to try to get people into that active surveillance mode and, and comfortable with their diagnosis. That's good. So that's another tool in our armamentarium that yeah. doesn't just lead you right away to cut open yeah, that's thyroid. right. So right. it means that the thyroid surgeons are getting less busy. Right. But, you know, we don't mind. You right, know, right. We, we want to do the right thing for the right patient. And you, you all just had something similar happen with prostate and, you know, that, that it's, it's, like, it's advancement. You yeah. want that, yeah. So relating to that then, so let's say you do um, get a cancer diagnosis. There are different types of thyroid cancer. Right. So how would you think about them in terms of what you do and how the treatment is and what the outcomes are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the most common is something called papillary thyroid carcinoma mm -hmm. or PTC. Um, and of the cancer group, that's about probably 80% of them. Um, so most common, it's also the one that it behaves kind of the most um, favorably in many ways. Mm. Um, it, what's again, interesting biology is that it, it can spread to lymph nodes. Um, oh. and, papillary, know, yeah. Yeah, mm. and so even though it does that, it doesn't necessarily always change the prognosis. So it may change the fact that there's more that we have to do, you know, more surgery, giving radiation and things like that. Uh -huh. um, but the actual survival remains pretty close to the same. Oh. Okay, so and then there's follicular, which is um, about 10 to 15% of cancers. And so papillary follicular, the large majority of thyroid cancers, um, and we call those together the well-differentiated group. All that means is that they kind of behave and retain a lot of the characteristics of normal thyroid cells. Mm. Um, so they're generally more favorable, they're easier to treat, um, you know, and patients do well with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you start going to the, other groups of medullary thyroid cancer. Um, so it just, it develops from a different cell type within the thyroid, um, and that's about 5% of them. And these, it's a it's an unusual group of tumors, but they they actually can be familial, so there's certain syndromes. Oh, here. like yeah. boys to men? Yes, there you go, MEN2. <laughs> MEN2. Yeah, and so, so it can be linked with that, and so if you see a strong family history of thyroid cancer, you know, like just over and over again, because the, the penetrance, meaning the, fa the, the fact that they actually get thyroid cancer, even if they have this gene, is very high. Ah. Um, so you'll see that really track in families. Papillary and, and follicular, they actually don't so much. And so, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times people think, oh, my, my dad had cancer, my mom had this, or a thyroid goiter, or a nodule. That may just be chance. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, it, yeah. It's not so as heritable, whereas medullary, you really have to look for that and go, oh, this is heritable. Well, so so quick question, uh, not to derail you, but so if the penetrance of that gene, in other words, you got the gene, the chances of you getting thyroid cancer are quite high, medullary thyroid yeah. cancer. Have you seen a lot of people coming to you with like 23andMe results saying, hey, I have this gene, like- Not usually. I'd okay. say that most of the times they, they're aware of it, I, I think. See. And I A, see. it's pretty rare. Yeah. And then B is that um, they know it. Um, and there's certain forms of MEN where like in pediatrics, you're doing the thyroidectomy. I don't necessarily do them, but they're coming through, they're taking out the thyroid prophylactically. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yes, so so yeah. you're getting people saying, hey, can you take this thing out? Like, you know, an Angelina Jolie's, yeah. you know, scenario. Right. Yeah. So, so basically if you, um, if you uh, um, identify this, you need to check. There's a bug. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm having a pants situation. Yeah, pants situation. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, Jeff yeah. Goldblum on yeah. your head. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sorry, with the windows open, because we keep the ventilation going, yeah. uh, we get bugs. No worries. <laughs> um, so yeah. So basically if you identify someone with medullary cancer, you need to do the genetic testing. Mm. And then if they have, you know, and you realize that it's the not the sporadic type that just comes up randomly, but it's familial, then you need to have their family tested oh, yeah, and, yeah. you know, kind of go through do all the that. whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me about medullary and the outcomes worse. Uh, worse, if it's caught early, it's it's not too bad. But yeah, as it starts to spread the lymph nodes and things like that, then it, it, it is definitely far worse than papillary and follicular, which are very good, like really high in the bar. Medullary is somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, then there's poorly differentiated or, or anaplastic. Anaplastic. Yeah. And that's kind of the worst mm. where, um, I actually think it's one of the fastest growing tumors that, that we ever encounter. Um, and perhaps in other parts of the body as well, but it, it can be rapidly progressive uh -huh. um, and, you know, oftentimes, if if it's not a situation where you took out the thyroid thinking it was papillary and they see anaplastic, then actually there's a chance that, that patient might do okay. Mm. If a patient comes to you with anaplastic because it's you know they have a huge thyroid mass, 
they're generally not going to do so well. Mm. Um, and so it's often unresectable by the time they see you. Mm. And then you worry about their airway is a big thing. So, you know, it'll compress the trachea, compress the windpipe. Because so, it grows so fast. Yeah, because yeah. it grows so quickly. Mm. And we don't have great treatments for it. So that sounds like that's a nasty, poorly differentiated, really genetically disrupted tumor. Yeah, and so yeah. that is, you know, I told you that about the, the incidence of people passing away from thyroid cancer hasn't right. really changed much. Right. The, the number, I guess. Um, that's that group sort of resides within there, right? So uh, the anaplastic thyroid cancers almost universally do poorly. They don't usually last more than a year or two. Uh, um, and then that comprises that group most likely. I see. And then there's a layer on a little bit of the other groups kind of you know sprinkled in there who who don't do so well from their disease, but but largely it's anaplastic patients who don't do anaplastic. That. You know, so and again, I, I hate make keep keeping parallels to COVID because people need to understand how we process numbers and statistics and stuff. It's a, it's a similar idea. It's this kind of Pareto distribution that like 1% of the tumors yeah. cause, you know, 90% of the fatalities. Yeah. And in COVID, you know, f a very small part of the population causes the vast majority of deaths. And that's people over 65, people with two chronic diseases. It doesn't mean it can't hurt other people. Right. But that that's something to understand in our mind. Uh, and it's the same with thyroid cancer. So, so a, a related question to this and, Feel free to school me if it's even a dumb question. So people with like Hashimoto's, with Graves, with these other endocrine thyroid disorders where there's a mis a jiggering of uh, production of hormone or autoimmune stuff going on, are they at higher risk for thyroid? They can cancer? be, they can ah. be. And so again, some of it's a little bit hard for me to know because um, they're typically under the care of an endocrinologist right. and having these checked out. So it may be that there's you know just a, a bit of a, Vigilance. Yeah, that the, they're being looked at. So maybe those numbers are a little higher, but but there is probably a slight increase uh, of thyroid nodules and thyroid cancers. In in either of those cases, like say yeah. Hashimoto Graves? Okay, got it. Yeah, because Hashimoto's is an underproduction because of autoimmune and Graves is an overproduction. Uh, well, so Hashimoto's is sort of like a, it's just it's like an inflammatory condition. Right. Graves is, is more truly an autoimmune. Antibodies. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah. Antithyroglobulin. Yeah. So, and thyroperoxidase. Uh, that's yeah. right, TPO. So, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. Um, So they can have, you know, like the bulging eyes and all these sorts of that's things. Right. So they can be, sometimes we have to manage them surgically because they just, they can't tolerate the medicines to keep the thyroid at bay. Um, So we will sometimes have to operate on them, but it's, it's not usually for a cancer related you know, I see, I see. By the way, the bulging eyes, that's a cross antibody to optic uh, something or other, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah so it's not, it's not that the thyroid is somehow in the eye or that's anything right. like that, but that's yeah, right. it's just a weird- It's an immune cross reactivity, right. Yeah. Interesting, the body is uh, an amazing thing. Crazy, isn't it? It does some crazy complex things. And then yeah. we come along with our infinite hubris. We understand it, not yet. <laughs> yeah, not that's yet. crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing we should talk about is, is the concept of a goiter. Yeah, tell um, me about that. Yeah, just because so we I pronounce it on... Guater, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I spell it R E. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's you know the, the goiter just means like a, a, an enlarged thyroid, and so I think sometimes people you know cross or conflate the idea of a cancer and a goiter. Mm. Um, so basically, a thyroid can sometimes enlarge for again we don't know why it just happens, and you know basically you get multiple nodules, um, and the thyroid can become very large, you know, to the point where. Um, it can it can restrict swallowing or breathing and things like that, or just visibly, you know, it just looks funny, so people are, are tired of it. And that can be a benign process. Most of the times, it is yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, in areas where there's no iodine, if you're iodine deficient, then that's right. sort of where it first was, you know, discovered that uh, hey, if you don't have enough iodine, the thyroid basically just enlarges. I think it's so hungry to to, to try to function, um, but that's why we have iodized salt. Right. So, you know, basically there's a little bit of iodine thrown into things. And so that, you know, in the course of a regular diet, you won't become iodine deficient, at least mm. in a westernized or, you know, non-third world country. Um, but then despite that, there's other goiters that can happen that just for whatever reason, the thyroid takes off. Mm. Um, and so those we actually will need to operate on uh, oftentimes just because it's too big or it's, you know, causing compressive symptoms. Mm. Um, there's a fun sign called Pemberton sign, where if you raise your arms over your head, uh, the it pulls the thyroid up and becomes, you know, like hard to breathe. Or, oh, you know, interesting. Feel like more Pem pressure. Pemberton, Pemberton sign. Yeah, you can go look it up. You can, I would have called it the the uh, Beavis and Butthead Cornholio sign. Because if you're like, <laughs> I am Cornholio, I need TV yeah. for my bunghole. Then, then you can't breathe. Yeah. You can't breathe, yeah. right, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Shut so, up, Beavis. <laughs> I think a lot of your viewers are not going to get that reference. Yeah, um, well, you'd be surprised. It's starting to get dated. It um, is. So am I, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, so we, we do a fair amount of, uh, you know, surgeries for, for enlarged thyroids. And 
universally or not universally, but um, by and large, those are non-cancer related. Or sometimes you find an incidental small cancer, but you're doing it for a different reason. So it's almost like a breast reduction surgery, you know? Except breasts are not pathologic, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, have to, I have to process that yeah. for a little bit. See, I, I make very strange analogies that make no <laughs> sense, even to me. So, so this idea then that this is, talking about like multi-nodular goiter. Yeah. So how do you think about that in terms of cancer risk? Because this comes up a lot. Yeah, so, you know, basically you can't biopsy every nodule. Sometimes right. There's maybe 30 of them. Um, so, you know, you, it's still worth doing an ultrasound to look around to see if there's anything, you know, that catches your eye or somehow meets criteria for biopsy. Um, but it just seems that most of the times if there's multiple nodules, it tends to be benign. Um, uh, and then your decision for surgery is not so much because of cancer. It's, are you having symptoms? Is it grown over time? So you might follow them with ultrasounds. Just look at the size of it uh, and then to sort of predict, okay, you're 40. It grew a centimeter over the past year. What's going to happen by the time you're 50? Right. It's going to get too big. So let's do it now. You you're going to be so all Pempertoned out. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want that to happen. Can't reach for the... the <laughs> Yeah, the light bulb. The light bulb. Right. Well, so relating to that, so those kind of surgeries, are those total thyroidectomies or are they partial thyroidectomies? It depends. It depends yeah. on if it's affecting both. It's weird. Sometimes both sides are very big. Sometimes there's one side that's huge, the other mm. side is normal. Mm. Um, so it, you know, it, it kind of depends on what your goals of the surgery and are. Yeah. Are those surgeries higher risk for complications with nerve damage than, say, a cancer that's surgery? Good question. Um, yeah, they are. They are slightly. Mm. So you know, it's. Um, it's a little bit harder to see things the bigger it gets, right. and it's a tight space. Um, we also tend to make smaller incisions because you know we don't want it to be as visible, right? Um, and so we're we're working in a in a narrow field basically. Uh, um, so so yeah. So if it the bigger it gets, it it's not necessarily linear, but there comes a point where like oh this is now going to be a little bit hard. Ah, uh, are robotics a thing in thyroid surgery yet? You know it it depends. Mm. Uh, I think there's been a lot of evolution, and uh, you know I, I guess. Maybe not because I'm older, um, but a lot of it is, you know, it's not necessarily that much of an advantage to it in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, it's true that you do get some visualization advantage, but to get there and deploy it, you know, you're not, um, mm. you're going through a lot more to get the the instruments in there. It's not as natural as just making a small incision right over where the part is that you're working. Right. So you tend to make distant incisions. So for a while, they used to transaxillary to make a cut, you know, through the armpit tunnel over oh. to get to the thyroid. Um, they're now doing transoral, or they go through the lip, actually, like in the gutter of your lip and your teeth, and then show the oh, tunnel down what? and get here. Ew. So some of these approaches are better for certain areas, yeah. like you can see better. Um, and But most of them are actually designed to move the incision. I see. Right, you're moving so the incision out of here to somewhere that's hidden. Is that that's purely an aesthetic decision? or? Really, yeah, yeah, at this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So say you're a model or something. And right, and it, you know, that if, matters. if it means a lot, then yeah, right, it right, can be done. Right. So, I mean, again, our patients value different things, you know? Yeah, and we like technology, you know, we like to, right. to see what we can do. Um, but Which is a double-edged sword. Sometimes. It can be, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think you yeah. just have to think about it judiciously. And um, I think for the right patient, it might be the right thing. Right. Um, but I also think, and we didn't talk about this as much, but like the volume of surgeries that you do probably matters. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for this particular, for thyroidectomy in general, uh, it's a good thing to have done, you know, have a regular part of your practice as opposed to doing one or two a year. Um, because then that routine, you know, gets harder to to manage. Um, likewise, I think with robotic or distant access surgery, where you're doing, you know, either endoscopic or some other approach, um, it's better to do many of them that way as opposed to that's uh, one percent of what I do, and I do 99 regularly. You know, you do need to create a situation where okay, I, I'm doing 30, 40, 50 a year, so that you feel that that it's not you know new every time you do it. Yeah, I feel like that talking to a lot of surgeons and and also kind of people who manage surgeons and look from a quality standpoint. Yeah. Volume matters so much. The fact, like you said, I mean, because it just becomes there's there's a you can describe it better than me, but a muscle memory and a general aptitude that requires high volume. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you know these are small structures; they're really delicate. Um, and then theoretically, we're actually doing fewer, mm. right? Because we're we're because there's, watching yeah. more, we're biopsying yeah, less, yeah, and so yeah. there's you know it, 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 there's still quite a number of thyroidectomies being done, but. Right. It is starting to dwindle a bit. So a center for excellence or a surgeon that's just does a ton of them yeah. is important. There are fewer of those, which means you'll have to travel potentially. Potentially, yeah. But right. I think it's probably worth at least talking with them and yeah. understanding kind of what the differences would be. What, how would you tell people if they're, you know, they have a thyroid nodule and they're looking for a surgeon or somebody that they, they how, do, how would they look for a good surgeon? Um, you know, so a lot of it has to do with referral patterns. Right. And so, you know, endocrinologists or primary care physicians are often the ones seeing these people first. They're not, you know, automatically seeing a surgeon or a specialist, um, you know, right off the bat. So 
those are good resources, mm. right? So the endocrinologists, and often they follow up with the endocrinologists or primary care physicians when they're managing their thyroid hormone. And, mm. you know, if they all come back talking like this, <laughs> then you go, eh, maybe they don't know what they're doing, right? Um, you know, uh, so so there's, there's things that they can do to figure out, like, who, you know, who are the best surgeons and who seem reliable and, you know. So it, it, it does sound like, again, you're you've got to put some weight on those primary care physician quarterbacks to generate those good guy networks of people they trust. And that means that we ought to resource those guys appropriately, which means transform medicine a little bit from you specialists running everything to maybe all of us together running everything. <laughs> well, no, and I think that, you know, we've talked about before, but I think, um, you know, access is a big yeah. issue. And so, you know, we've done everything we can to make it easy. Um, and then it's a lot of it is relationship building so that, mm -hmm. You know, if we do get a referral from someone that we don't know, we give them a call and say, hey, let's talk about this case and let's talk with the patient. What, what are the plans? Um, and that goes a long way in developing that. And uh, then, you know, it, it just becomes easier the next time. That, see, that's huge. And again, it, it generates a collegiality too that we've been missing a little bit since we've, the way we, so many entities now send referrals is an epic staff message or a button that says consult ENT or, you know, head and neck oncology. Yeah, I mean, it is more efficient, but you're right that there there can be nuances that yeah. are missed. You're like, hey, this patient is particularly challenging or you know, how, whatever How many times has that happened? I mean, every time, if I just actually do a face-to-face. -face, yeah. You know, as a hospitalist, if I go talk to the ER doc face-to-face, yeah. -face, I find nuance or the nurse even better because then you go, oh, so that's what's going on with the family dynamic or that's what the patient wasn't right. telling us. Yeah. yeah, and you can't chart that, right? It's, no. it's There's subtle things that subtle you can't things. pick up. Um, and that's also why, for example, when we run our team, we have our team, you know, tumor boards every week. Right. It's with the radiologist, with the pathologist. Even though they've written a report, we review it. Yeah. And then the verbal things they tell us, like, oh, actually, you know, and it, it goes back and forth because we might say, oh, I'm actually worried about that part. And they go, oh, I didn't know that. Let me, let's look at that. And then, so, you know, there's an interplay that can happen um, that sort of is deeper than just a written report. You know what it is? New trainees don't understand this. They miss this idea that actual discourse and going and seeing the scan with the radiologist and going through it actually makes a difference. They expect it's just gonna show up as a report and that, okay, well, that's what it says, so that's the truth. It's like, mm, that's not how medicine works. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, obviously you have, again, you have to trust the radiologist. Right. You know, and there, there's often a team that you may know a couple of them, but not all of them. And so, you know, you just see, you look at the name on the report. Yeah, and then you, you go, okay, think, okay, this is good. They yeah, know how well, I do this. Yeah, yeah. Or, or how do I call them or, you know. Right. Um, but but I think at least from a cancer standpoint, that's where we have little margin for error. Yeah. Right. We don't, we, we can't be wrong. Right. Um, and then we want to go into the surgery or in the treatment plan, whatever it is, feeling like, okay, I am armed. I have everything kind of teed up and to the best that I can, then I can put forward the plan. How's it been um, during COVID with uh, teaching house staff and access and those kind of things at UCSF with you? Yeah, I, actually with house staff, uh, little change. We, we did a little twist uh, during the, the deep part of COVID where things are a little more uncertain, uh, where we cohorted. Um, right. So basically we just separated teams. And so on the cancer team, there's two teams uh, from surgeons to reconstruction to residents um, and, and fellows so that we never really crossed paths. We actually took shifts almost like you were... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you were Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Right. And then we kind of flip-flopped um, so that if one team did fall sick, that there was a backup team that it wasn't like the whole team had to go out. Got it. Um, you know, it. it the, the good thing is, is that honestly, none of us, nobody got sick, nobody got symptomatic. No one had to take days off even for quarantining. And, and you guys are high risk in the sense that you're in people's faces. Yeah, so there yeah. was a lot of uncertainty about that too. Yeah. You know, in the sense that that is where Corona lives. It's, right. you know, in the nose and in the mouth, uh, the mucous membranes. And so- um, you know, I think we, we have to just give props to the, the community that, that has been doing a great job of, you know, masking and trying to stay socially distanced. And so the incidence is low. Mm. So what it meant is that the incidence in the hospital is low. Yeah. So it's, it's societal, you yeah. know? So, so I think we- This we is got, San Francisco we're talking about. Right. Yeah, yeah, they've been the really good about it. Yeah. So I think we got a little, you know, little luck from that. Um, you know, a lot of my colleagues from across the country just, they had to shut down. They couldn't even do these surgeries anymore because there was no space. Wow. Um, you know, and then there's there's some groups that were very afraid to, you know, examine people or put a scope down someone's nose and things like that. Um, and so I think in that sense, they would try to get around it, you know, like look at scans and do things a little bit less invasively. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, we, we sort of carried on and I think the trainees appreciated that. What's your PPE situation? How do you go into these rooms? Yeah, it depends. It's complicated. Yeah, it's constantly Because yeah, there's aerosolizing procedures. That's right. And so even the definition of an aerosol <laughs> right. I, I think it's challenging, you know, yeah. like if, if someone sneezes. That's aerosolized. <laughs> to me it is. And droplets. But, to, but yeah. to other people they say, well, that's just droplets. Right. And so, you know, it, I think that definition is a little bit challenging. And so some of it is just um, individual in the mm. sense that, you know, we have guidelines. Um, UCSF is pretty good about and the guidelines. It's, it's often not a must, mm. you know, or should. It's, you know, consider or, you know, it, it depends, right? So. Yeah. So now that PPE is not so much an issue in terms of the scarcity of it, at least where we are, um, I think that you know if people want to wear an N95 and a face shield, just look in the mouth. I think that's fine. Yeah, you know yeah. Um, the guidelines would say that you don't need to do that. On the other hand, if we scope someone, like put a tube down their nose to look down their or a camera down their nose to look at things, then we typically wear an N95 and a face shield. Got it. Um, and if someone has a tracheotomy or a laryngectomy and we have to instrument that, then likewise, we would protect ourselves. And and at UCSF right now, is everyone uh, surgical face masked 24 seven when you're in the hospital or um, Goggles, yeah, some sort of eye protection, I guess is a word. Eye protection use, yeah. too. Whether yeah. that's facial goggles, mm -hmm. um, you know, various. So, so you go into the lounge and you're hanging out with people, you're still goggled? I'll be honest, I don't go to the lounge. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah. we go in, we do our work. And, and you and you get out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's tough because, you know, it, it's hard, especially if your colleagues are there and, you know, you want to chat or you want to drink a cup of coffee. Right. Then everything starts to, you know, like you can't basically, yeah. or, you know, you have to change what you do. Yeah. Um, but I think our team has been pretty good about, you know, maintaining social distance. Um, you know, on these teaching conferences, we all just split up. We don't congregate to, you know, look all at the same screen. We don't have to do that. You can just right. pull Go up your laptop anywhere. or your phone and, you know, take it remotely in the waiting room or something like that in a chair. And your nosocomial outcomes have been great. I mean, healthcare workers have not gotten very sick there. Yeah, yeah. we've been, again, we've been very lucky, yeah. um, but certainly on our team, nobody's gotten sick. Yeah. Now that are residents. And so, yeah. we, you know, knock on wood, we've been, been fortunate. It's great. So it just shows it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. it is a culture shift. Um, but I, I think, I think the way I explained to one of my patients was that it, it's not so much me that I live in fear of myself getting sick. Yeah. It's more so that I think, I have responsibility to everyone around me. Mm. And then the other thing is that even just an exposure means we have to quarantine. Yeah. Which means then we're out for two weeks and we yeah. can't do our jobs. And then all those patients that we have lined up, we have to figure out how, you know, how are they going to manage? So there's this trickle down effect. And so, you know, I think that if, if you yourself feel like, okay, I, I think this is a little risk and whatever, but it's more so that that exposure risk, meaning that you then have to come out you know, the pool essentially. Yeah. Because you don't want to spread it to other people. That, a that's that's a burden, I think. Big hit. Yeah. I've noticed that with a lot of doctors actually, like yourself, they, they are very cautious in public, everywhere, very cautious, like beyond the risk to themselves, because again, they, they may be low risk. And uh, it's for that reason. It's exactly for that reason. Yeah. Whereas I get up in people's faces, just rip my mask <laughs> off. I mean, my mask is placebo. It's just, it's a Victoria Secrets, just like, like a mesh, it's a, a mesh, bra mesh, yeah. right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm just breathing through it because I just wanted to be edgy. But no, 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 I'm kidding. Um, I always wear a mask in public and I think um, it's the it's a minimal ask for me. Now there are people whose moral matrix says that's an infringement on my rights and so on. And I look, I understand that. The thing is we're trying to get through this with, again, it's what you value. Do you value care versus harm? The idea that you might hurt other people or yourself or do you value liberty versus oppression or do you value, and, and this country has got a diversity of values. so it's a strength and a weakness. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. I think that it's um, a lot of individual opinions out there. And, it, you know, it's it's hard to have data, you know, and yeah. sort of in many ways, people like to fall back on data is like, well, if, if it doesn't prove it, then why should I not do this? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, the thing about a mask is that it's not that hard. Yeah. They're easy to get. You know, it, it, it doesn't really change your, your behavior necessarily, you know? So it seems like that's a fairly simple intervention. Right, right. Um, then obviously within the hospital, then, you know, we step it up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and so speaking of like virtual learning, because you brought that up, you're doing a thing. I sure am, yeah. yeah tell so, me about this thing. Well, so every two years we, we run a course and it's a CME course, or, you know, for, for physicians and allied health professionals to get. So nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, yeah, everybody. SLPs and the whole group. Um, SLPs too, right? Because yeah. you were, you're so tightly working with speech pathology. Yeah, so actually yeah. for this conference, uh, it's usually in person. And so, you know, we like to show off our Bay Area and, and have a good time here. But, you know, this year we obviously realize that's, that's not feasible. So we're still running it. We're doing it virtually. 
Um, oh, would you be like, okay, here's where half of our state burned down. Here's a smoke bank. <laughs> yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot left. Um, yeah, but yeah, so it's a uh, it's a two day course typically, and the nice thing was is that because it's virtual, we actually could expand our speaker list. Oh, nice. Um, so normally you have you know three or four people from out of out of town, and now we could, we really increase that number. Oh. Um, so thanks thanks to all the people who agreed to do it, um, but. Then, so that's uh, running for the first two days, and that's covering basically head and neck surgery. So all the things that we talked about and, and management of patients. Um, and then the third day, it's a separate course, but it's run, actually run by our SLP team. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm participating in that as well. Um, but it's going to be a day's worth of, of talks about how to manage head and neck cancer patients and sort of the specialty-specific uh, areas of that. So for the speech language pathologist, so th- th- that's huge because they're a big group of our audience and they're always asking like, can you do something for us? Can you, yeah. so this is a great way to get them up to speed on that particular aspect of management. Yeah, and they can yeah. do both. I mean, and the other nice thing is that um, just because we know it's it's inconvenient for a lot of people is that uh, for the registrants, we're actually giving them 30 days of, you can just watch the lectures. Oh, um, so if you are like, oh, I can't make it Friday, but Saturday, Sunday sound great, or you know, I'm going to miss accessible. a few, then they can watch it again. That's great. Yeah. And, and people can use their CME budget to pay for this and yep. that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so what we'll do is we'll put a link up. What's the conference called? Um, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> Typical. Yeah. So it's better if we, we'll post a link. There we um, go. We'll put, yeah. we'll post a link. We'll post a link and you guys can sign up and, uh, maybe you can put in whatever notes or comments that you learned about it from our show. That way, uh, yeah. Patrick will be impressed with our reach. That would be great. Actually, yeah. <laughs> um, our marketing department would love that. That's right. By the way, yeah. just full disclosure, Patrick's not paying me anything. We're not making affiliates. <laughs> this is yeah. purely, I think it's a great thing that he's doing. And yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think it's, it's great. And actually, um, Again, off topic, but but we were able to get uh, one of our speakers from um, Africa actually gave a, an endowed lecture. This is separate. Um, and through that connection, we're actually inviting um, the head and neck surgery group from Africa sort of throughout the continent. That's uh, awesome. To participate. So I think it's just a way that, you know, even though like if this were just in San Francisco, people couldn't make it. But now we actually have the ability to reach out internationally even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to have, you know, invite people and to participate and to learn. So it's actually... You know, as much as you know, no one wants COVID to happen. No one wants social distancing. Um, we're trying to make the best of it. Uh, can you speak for yourself? This has been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> like, I'm actually a, quite a misanthrope. You know, Patrick's like <laughs> one of the like three people I hang out with ever, right? And uh, otherwise, I'm perfectly happy to have this kind of distance. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what's interesting in in Africa though, there's isn't there? I forget now. I'm trying to remember from medical school. Is Epstein Barr related or nasopharyngeal? Or well, what's the deal in Africa that's specific to their head and neck? It's hard. To, I'd say that the biggest thing that we learned um, is the just the lack of access. Access again. And yeah. so, you know, it's interesting. We were looking at um, numbers of, let's say, head and neck surgeons uh, in all of Africa. There are 17. What? And that's 1.2 billion people. For a continent. Yes. 1.2 billion people, 17 yes. head and neck surgeons. So you can then, now, see, that's a center for excellence. Right <laughs> well, all scattered without. Scattered everywhere. Yeah. Right? And oh. so, you know, those the statistics are just sobering. And you think, well, how many does that mean for the Bay Area? That would mean not head and neck surgeons even, but 3.3 otolaryngologists. Wow. So ENT surgeons, three for this entire, you know, several million population, you know, population right? Ooh. And so, you know, so I think that a lot of their issues are not so much just, you know, the different types of cancers and what they can do, but it's just a limitation of even Access. like pathology and just getting in to see the surgeon, traveling, yeah. radiation, yeah. chemotherapy, right? So yeah. it's just so many different issues. It's been merciful that they haven't suffered as much fatality from COVID and it might be younger population. Yeah, uh, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of theories why that is, but it's interesting, it something we can learn from in the West from Africa. Um, but dude, Patrick, man, it's always like, yeah, awesome. I'm so glad we're practically neighbors now, right? Like uh, we should do more of this. And I think there's other topics people are really interested in head and neck. Yeah, I'd be happy to, the, to learn and to get feedback and see what we can talk about Absolutely, next. we do it every time. This is our third show now. And uh, I always learn something. And, and look, as a hospitalist, like I'd be consulting you and just let you write your note I don't need to learn anything. Patrick's got it covered, right? But now I'm like, well, this is really, because again, this idea of virtual learning has now suddenly it's taken this public uh, sort of consciousness. But this is something that we've been kind of trying to do via the yeah. show forever. Yeah. And I think go to where people are, they're on social media, they, you know, and maybe there's one person out there who now is gonna reframe how they think about uh, uh, an incidental thyroid nodule that was discovered on them or their loved one or something and, and reapproach it, even in how they find a doctor. That kind of thing. So yeah. dude, it's it's awesome to have you on the yeah, show, man. Um, 
We'll get you next time. Guys, if you appreciate the kind of stuff we do, become a supporter of the show on Facebook, on YouTube. You can also just like do one-time donations on PayPal and I'll send you a little email. But really, I want you to be a part of the tribe because we have this like closed discussion group where we talk hella smack, dude. And it's like people who wanna be there so they don't troll each other. They're like really kind to each other. And check out the link that we're gonna put uh, to... Um, Patrick's CME conference because it's gonna be dope if you're into head and neck stuff or if you're a speech and language pathologist because that would be the bomb. I love you guys. Stay well, stay woke, and we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.